Okay, there's a little historical uh, background necessary to understand this 14th chapter. You can see in the first verse that it begins with Herod, the, the uh, Tetrarch, sometimes said Tetrarch, but uh, Tetrarch. So Tetrarch, probably a little better way to understand this. So Tetra, four, right? So when you see Tetra, and Ark is a kingdom. So a tetrarch is a kingdom that's divided into four sections. And so Herod the Great, the murderer of the infants in Bethlehem and the, the attempted murderer of Jesus, dies. He dies shortly after Christ escapes his clutches. Uh, we'll put it at 4 BC. And uh, so then there's a power struggle that happens thereafter because <clears throat> Uh, Herod was uh, so politically insinuated himself into the Roman Empire <clears throat> that um, it was necessary to kind of keep the peace, the Pax Romana. And the way to do that best uh, would be to divide it into sections. So they did. They divided the kingdom up. Um, none of Herod's sons had the same persona and charisma, so to speak, that Herod the Great had. Uh, and we might say uh, they didn't really have the same ruthlessness. So, um, <clears throat> so they divide the kingdom into four sections. And these are the four sections. You can see here from typical maps uh, how these territories were laid out. There, there's the, uh, the land mass that we know of Israel even to this day. So, uh, so it was divided into a tetrarchy. And so we've got four sections of uh, this tetrarchy. And uh, Archelaus uh, uh, claims the... Uh, the prize jewel, and that would be the territory of uh, Judea, and along with it, the, uh, the smaller section that belonged to Benjamin. So, uh, so they, he rules here what has to be the more uh, important portion of the Tetrarchy. Then we have Philip, uh, who uh, takes the uh, territories of uh, towards the north, and. Uh, Antipas, I think that's the next one I have here, yeah, takes the Galilean section, so uh, a, a kind of a budding Ituria, uh, and, uh, and then of course we have Lysanias, and he has uh, the territories of Trachonitis, so that would be like uh, being the mayor of Turtle Creek. So uh, real on the outskirts, so to speak. So uh, what happens is uh, Archelaus proves to be a weakling, and so he's deposed. The Roman Empire can't have a weakling in charge of the uh, more important sections of Judea. Uh, this is the center of uh, uh, Israeli worship. This is where the temple was. The Romans contributed to the building of the temple and the bringing of an aqueduct into the uh, city so that there'd be a water supply. So they, they had a certain investment in Jerusalem, and as a result, uh, it was critical for them to have uh, a, and built in fact, a fortress called the Fortress Antonia that abutted the, uh, the temple. And so, uh, so he's deposed and uh, we have a governor then that takes place and ultimately it, uh, it, the governorship turns to Pontius Pilate somewhere at 28 uh, AD. So, uh, so here's some of the history that's behind it. So when we talk about Herod the Tetrarch, we're talking about this Herod, Herod Antipas, was the king of this territory again that was called Galilee. All right, so I'll give you a little background. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. Well, you couldn't 
not hear of the fame of Jesus. His fame went out everywhere. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't hide what he was doing. Uh, everybody heard of it. And as a result, uh, multitudes would follow him, wanted to be where he was. It would be the same today if Jesus should appear. Uh, multitudes would want to know where he is and want to be where he is, as a matter of fact. So, of course, uh, um, a word reaches Herod, and after all, Jesus hails from his territory, Galilee. Uh, so he knows about Jesus. The fame of Jesus now is, uh, is f reaching out. We're only talking now about uh, the early part of his ministry. So uh, the years of his popularity, as it were. So the first year and a half, so to speak. And, and already the word has gotten back to the king that uh, there, there is a famous prophet now. And he's attracting multitudes. And of course, he will take that under advisement since that's a threat to his authority. Uh, perhaps he's even heard by now that this prophet uh, is the son of God, uh, the son of David, and uh, that would be a threat to his uh, little empireship. So he heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Uh, so this is a curious expression. <laughs> uh, what does he think, really? So... Uh, I don't think that the Herods were necessarily very religious. They weren't really fully Jewish. They were kind of half Jewish. They were Idumean. So uh, there was not really an allegiance to the religion uh, and the hopes of everlasting life and that sort of thing. If anything, they would have followed the Sadducean perspective of a liberal attitude. You don't take the Bible literally. You don't really think that there is a, uh, a life after death or anything of that nature. And their uh, immorality would demonstrate that. There was no fear of God in the way they lived their lives. It was an open soap opera and disgusting in many ways. So uh, when Herod Antipas, this word gets to him, uh, he's superstitious at this point. Uh, and he must believe in ghosts. He thinks John is risen from the dead to come back to haunt him. And uh, so that's, that's where he is with this. And uh, he said that, that could be the only answer. Uh, because... After all, we know that Herod Antipas killed John. Now, before he killed him, uh, his uh, virago wife, Herodias, uh, uh, you know, it was a matter of divorce and remarriage involved here, and of course, without any legitimate grounds. And so, uh, John preached against this marriage and uh, let it be known publicly that they were living in sin. And uh, so, that reproach came upon uh, Herod and Herodias, and they, they thought to themselves, we've got to be rid of this man. You know, he's, uh, he's destroying our reputation. You know, today, though, political... Uh, it, there was a time when uh, that would not be tolerated in America, that we'd have a president like we recently had, who had three wives, you know, divorced one, got, got another, and then got another one, and so forth. That would never have been... That would have never washed before, but, but now, of course, since the Clintons and so on, everything has changed, and people say, oh, you know, that's almost a, that's a badge of honor, and that, that's how they look at it, but it's still disgusting, and disgusting in the sight of God, for that matter. And if we had a John the Baptist today, he would tell Donald Trump, you're in sin, deep sin, and you need to repent, uh, and Joe Biden, likewise. So, um, no, John the Baptist didn't play political uh, favors. He was concerned about the law of God. So, uh, as a result, there was only one thing to do about John the Baptist. Put him in jail. 
shut him up, so to speak. And this is exactly what Herod Antipas does, puts him in jail. And so our account uh, pretty much uh, goes back, you know, and, uh, and takes up the information. This had already happened. And so uh, we're kind of going back, like they do oftentimes in a movie and so forth. It's called a flashback. And uh, they give you information that, uh, you know, they're already ahead and proceeded already into the story. And then they go back and fill in some of the details. And that's what Matthew's doing in this account. We might now at this point even go to Mark's gospel and get another little bit of insight that helps us understand why such superstition and as it were fear that gripped the heart of Herod Antipas when he heard of Jesus and thinking it must be John the Baptist. He's coming back and he's come to haunt me. Well, it was because Herod listened to John. Uh, even though he had him in jail, he'd go down and get a Bible study. And it says here that Herod feared John knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him. Uh, by observing means that he listened to what John was saying and he gave credence to it. Observing would have meant that he even practiced some of what John was telling him. Uh, but of course, you know, you can do all of that and still be quite lost. Religious, but lost. And when he heard him, he did many things. It heard him gladly. So you can see there was a great uh, uh, conundrum that he was confronted with that night when he had his birthday party. And, uh, and uh, Herodias goes to her uh, prostitute daughter and says, go do a striptease dance in front of the king and get him all excited and he'll make some promises here. And so he does. And this is what drink and party life is all about. You do dumb things, stupid things, things that you will regret for the rest of your life. And that's exactly what happens. So uh, of course, I'm getting ahead in the story. So uh, let me speak something about the conscience that was involved here because I think this is a critical uh, factor. It's a wonderful factor, as a matter of fact. Thank God for a guilty conscience. Uh, John 1 says that uh, there's a light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And I have to think that's the light of conscience. People innately know right from wrong. They know good and evil. Uh, that was something that Adam and Eve won for all of us, didn't they? So we have a conscience. And it began there in the Garden of Eden. And, uh, you know, after they sinned, they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the, uh, in, the, in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. That's about the most ridiculous statement you could make, by the way. God who made the garden now, you, you're hiding behind a tree that he made. So, I mean, he's omniscient. You can't hide from him. But so they thought, or at least they were so ashamed of the disobedience that they, they, they had to hide from God. Their conscience, you know, it pained them. And, uh, and so uh, the Lord said, I, I heard thy voice, or Adam said, I heard thy voice and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So God says, where art thou? And that the answer was, well, when I heard your voice, I was afraid of you. That, that was never the case before you sinned. But now that you've sinned, now you have a guilty conscience and you're running and you're hiding. That same conscience is seen here in Herod Antipas, in a sense. He knows he did a wrong thing. And it, it would plague him the rest of the days of his life. So we see in Jonah, remember our stories, we, uh, we spoke of uh, the king of Nineveh. This is an incredible story. The Ninevites, I just finished reading Nahum. And uh, you know Nahum comes a hundred some years after Jonah. Jonah brings a revival to Nineveh. It's an incredible thing. You know, when you think that America is beyond saving, uh, read, uh, read the prophet Jonah. 
Jonah thought the same thing. Ninevites can't be saved. They don't deserve to be saved. And I'm not going to go preach. And uh, for there'd be no good reason to preach to them. And uh, but God said, "Go preach to them." There's always hope, apparently. So uh, we may think that America is beyond the pale, uh, but you keep praying Amen. because God could do great things. And, and so we hear that. We, we see it happening. And uh, we don't see it on a grand scale, but we can see it on an individual scale, and that rejoices the heart. One soul uh, gets saved, and everybody in heaven's clapping and applauding. Amen. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest, that would mean the king himself, even to the least of them. Uh, they, even, they even put sackcloth on the animals, right? Everybody. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose and from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. So you would have to think how, uh, these pagan minds, how could they? And yet they knew that they were wrong in the sight of God, and they, they were a violent people, bestial. Some of the acts that they did, you know, you see the bas-relief that uh, they've uncovered, uh, at some of the various uh, sites in Nineveh, and you see these uh, these carvings of the brutality of the Ninevites when they would impale people and 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 literally take a a, a spear and uh, and and put them up on a spear and let them die in that fashion. They were the inventors uh, of, of cruel devices uh, to uh, to uh, bring evil to people. So so at the end we have he arose and lays down his robe. Well. Because he knew, he knew he was wrong in the sight of God. For the invisible things of him, of Jesus, from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we know that conscience is there. And uh, Romans 2 goes on to tell us even in the last day when the Gentiles uh, who had not the law, they do by nature the things contained in the law, these having a law unto themselves, so that's the law of conscience. They show the works of the law written in their hearts. Uh, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Conscience is a powerful thing. And uh, we may think sometimes that, the, well, our people now are at this uh, bestial level. You know, they act like animals. And you would say, there's, there's no hope now. And uh, you, you keep hearing, look at these, uh, this, these slaughtering uh, Hamas people. And we think, you know, no conscience. They, they're, but th this is what their civilization was all about. In a sense, it was founded on that. So you make sure that while you're praying for the peace in Jerusalem, that you pray for the salvation of the Palestinians and the Jews. They're both lost. They're quite blind. So... Um, it was Immanuel Kant, who was not a believer, at least made this, uh, what I have to say, a salient point. Two things he said filled the mind with increasing wonder and awe. The starry heavens above and the moral law within. So even Immanuel Kant, you know, Nietzsche uh, condemned Immanuel Kant and uh, thought he had gone mad. <laughs> Statements like this that seemed to be almost theistic. Uh, but... Uh, no, Immanuel Kant was not a Christian, but he seemed to understand that there was something, a moral law, there was something that uh, you couldn't get beyond. It was impossible. It would be later that Sigmund Freud would come up with, uh, you know, psychoanalysis and uh, psychiatry, 
where he would actually uh, denounce the Victorian morals of people and that this is really what's in the, in the, uh, in the way for people because they have this false guilt and that he believed that that was the worst thing that can happen to people psychologically, that they, you know, they're, they're riddled with guilt and they've got to get rid of this guilt and so on. John Milton said, uh, and he was uh, the great poet, you recall, he went blind and he wrote Paradise Lost. And he said, mine ears, mine ears shall not be slow, mine eye not shut, and I will place within them as a guide my umpire conscience, whom if they will hear, light after light, well used, they shall attain, and to the end, persisting safe, arrive. And uh, Shakespeare wrote, my conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, in every tale condemns me for a villain. Uh, so that was in uh, King Richard, uh, I think. So, so even these secular writers understood something about the matter of conscience and the importance of conscience. You'll see in the Bible illustrations of this. Elijah was the conscience of the nation. He was nothing but a Tishbite, which uh, was basically a persona non grata. Nobody ever heard of a Tishbite or what he was and what... Uh, they might just as well have said of him as they said of Jesus, uh, what good thing comes out of Tishbe? <laughs> but it was Elijah, and Elijah had good and powerful words for the nation to turn from their evil. So his, uh, his mortal enemy was Ahab and his uh, evil wife Jezebel. So Ahab said unto Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. So uh, he brought conviction to both of them, didn't he? We think of King Saul. Here's a man that started well but ended so poorly. Be sure that you learn from his foolish examples. So Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words. And uh, even later, Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy, and thy words. And then he goes on to say, uh, uh, to pray for me. Because he knew in his heart that uh, he was wrong before God. He was once a prophet. David, as you well know, fell. And what a terrible fall it was, and a precipitous one. His life was ne would never be the same after that. And the fourfold curse would be upon him. Uh, so sad when we read his story. But David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Conscience told him this. Uh, we read the New Testament. And we think of the trial of Jesus. Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a heathen. What does he really know? Uh, by that time, no Romans were believing in the, uh, in the pantheon of gods that they inherited from the Greeks. They believed in the living God, Caesar. To them, that was all they had. Caesar was their great provider. And, uh, and so they owed everything to him and allegiance to Caesar. And they, would, they vowed allegiance. And Pontius Pilate was certainly in that ilk. But then before him stands the son of the living God. And one can only imagine what it must be like to have stood in the presence of Christ. You know, the, uh, the artists of the Renaissance and even before that depicted Christ with a halo, a nimbus. It was their way of trying to describe, you know, there was some kind of holiness that followed him. But, you know, uh, there was no nimbus, there was no halo, but there certainly had to be an aura. 
What I mean by that is there was a presence. Uh, and to be in his presence. And Pontius Pilate in the presence of the Almighty. can, uh, and, and now it's in his hands to dispose of him. And what will he do with him? So when Pilate washed, uh, took Jesus and said, I'll have, I'm not going to condemn him. I have nothing to do with the, with the uh, blood of this just man. See you to it. He gives it back to the people, doesn't he? And then symbolically takes water, washes his hands uh, before the multitude says, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. So that's, that's the, but his conscience, you see, so troubled him. Uh, perhaps with the aid of a, uh, a God-fearing wife. Uh, who can tell what influences may have been in her life, by the way, that she would have uh, such a premonition that would uh, arouse her from sleep and, and send a message uh, at the court not to condemn this man. Do not condemn this man. She must have understood that this man was more than just a man. Uh, whatever the case is, Pontius Pilate had his opportunity and I think utterly failed in it. And then, of course... Judas Iscariot. So Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Uh, you know, there's a great lesson in the two repentances, right? You've got the repentance of Judas and the repentance of Peter. One was a godly sorrow uh, unto repentance, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Judas had the repentance of the world, a sorrow of being caught, a sorrow of realizing that he shouldn't have done what he did. That's not enough to save anybody. Peter was also sorry for what he did in betraying Jesus. That said, he repented of it with a godly sorrow. So conscience drove Judas to a state of madness and he killed himself. In the book of Acts, we have the case of Paul. Paul was so glad to represent himself in these various tribunals. Uh, let's not forget his upbringing was such that he had a legal mind and he could frame forensic argument and he was uh, no fool when it came to the court and certainly an articulate man. And so he stands here, he reasoned righteousness, temperance and judgment to come and Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time when I have convenient season I will call for thee. And he could only take so much of that, you know, so much and, and he finally said, go away, there's too much here, you know. He was trembling at the thoughts of righteousness and judgment and it troubled him and his wife who was a Jewess perhaps you know lent some credence to what Paul was preaching but as far as I know Felix did not have another opportunity perhaps he did God's very merciful after all but uh, when you put off your heart becomes harder and much more difficult to reach Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. So uh, the conscience will be there as our ultimate guide at the end. We know that what, the, so, what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. The conscience will be there. Uh, so it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Alright, back to our text so we have here in the third verse. So Herod had, uh, for Herod had laid hold on John. So this is the flashback. So, uh, so we learn there in the first verse that, you know, he killed John. So we know that. And now he thinks he's risen from the dead to come back and haunt him. 
And then, uh, so we get the details for Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herod Isaac's sake. His brother Philip's wife, Matthew's careful to outlay the problem, the sin, for uh, his brother Philip's wife. You see, he doesn't consider their marriage to be lawful in the sight of God. For John said unto him, it is not lawful for thee to have her. We're thankful for a man that's not afraid and doesn't curry the favor of politicians. He says the truth, and the truth cost him his head. So um, we know the story well, but when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodice danced before them and uh, pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And uh, she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. Uh, what kind of people are these, you wonder, right? Uh, it's one thing to say, well, we, we want him dead. It's quite another thing to say, I want to see his head. Uh, again, these people, I think they were plagued with fear. They wanted to make sure he really was dead. They wanted some evidence of it, I suppose, um, whatever it might be. But one could only uh, imagine the terror that would have to have struck the heart of Herod Antipas, who was in charge of the death of so righteous a man. Uh, later, uh, when we uh, approach the end of the chapters here in Matthew, uh, we have the accounts of Herod uh, being given opportunity to try Jesus. When Herod uh, saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season. That's what we're learning in Matthew. Uh, he heard of his fame. Now he desired to see him for a long season because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. And one might also just imagine that he wanted to see Jesus to make sure he wasn't John the Baptist risen from the dead. And so Herod and his men uh, take Jesus uh, the and they mock him uh, in a gorgeous robe and they sent him again to Pilate without any judgment being made. I don't think Herod was going to make the same mistake twice. And so uh, Pilate was hoping that Herod would pronounce the death sentence on him and it would be off of his hands. But the hot potato came back to him and uh, the people got what they wanted, the death of the Son of God. All right. And so Jesus went forth, uh, having heard that the disciples of uh, John came to bury what remained of John and give him a proper burial. <clears throat> so when Jesus went forth and he saw a great multitude uh, and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. Now we're apt to just read past that. It's almost uh, a literary bridge to take us from one narrative account to the next. Uh, but I wouldn't be so quick to move past this without considering what happens here. You know, the, we've got a multitude following Jesus at this point. So these are the years of his popularity, and he's perhaps reached the peak of it, by the way. And multitudes gather wherever he is, and who wouldn't? especially what went before him with all the signs and wonders. I've given the illustration here about hospitals being emptied, you know. So, uh, so every village, every city that he went to, they brought the sick to him and all the sick, he healed all the sick in a, in a single village. 
So you can imagine the village of Oakland, you know, where we've got four or five different hospitals there. And we've got hundreds of patients in those hospitals and Jesus healing every one of them. No wonder the multitudes uh, thronged him wherever he would go. And, and, and he was generous enough to share his power and to demonstrate the kingdom is at hand. Who could have missed this, you would think? Well, of course, this is a bridge that leads to, to something else. With so great a multitude of people, now we're talking about 5,000 men. So 5,000 men didn't count the women. And uh, so how many women are there? Well, for every man, two women are probably chasing him, right? But so we've got 10,000 people there and children. So, so the multitude is more than just the 5,000, we might say. But we would just count the 5,000, and that's a multitude of people. So they're all assembled here, uh, and they're out in a wilderness place. Uh, in fact, it's described as a desert place in our text here. In the, what, the 15th verse, I think it's the next one, yeah. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place, and the time has now passed. Uh, what he means by that is uh, a lunch, lunch and dinner. We've, you know, we're, we've got people here who haven't eaten all day. And believe me, if they haven't eaten all day, they become hostile. So, so they, they said, we've got to get rid of these people. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. So uh, there, something has to happen. Uh, we're going to be in trouble here. And it's at this time that Jesus puts them to the, to the test. And it's a remarkable moment here. Send the people away, so that then they can go to the villages and farms around here and find food and lodging. This is a lonely place. You yourselves give them something to eat. But all we have are five loaves and two fish. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth.
people were hungry. They were in the wilderness. And like the psalmist wrote, they wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. And then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them forth by the right way, that they may go to a city of habitation. So uh, likewise, we are, we find people that are very hungry, I think. That's why they turn to drugs and drink and pornography and foolishness. They're hungering for something, some meaning to life, some pleasure, but they find none. Uh, temporary pleasures. The devil gives you a cheap thrill, that's all he can give you. He, he, there's no permanence to it. And in fact, uh, all of whatever he gives you is addictive. And, and, and you become a slave to it. And after a while, you loathe the very thing that you would kill for, and steal for, and go to jail for. So we wander also, our people wander in a wilderness uh, with no city to dwell in. And uh, they're homeless, in other words. They're hungry, and they're thirsty, and their soul is fainting in them. They're looking for something. And uh, we have the answer, by the way. So we, we have the great privilege every week to go out and give the answer to people that are lost. Amen. The bread of life. Now, Jesus gave the great discourse. John's gospel is the spiritual gospel, as you well know. And it's a... Uh, we have seven IMs there, and one of the, fir the first IM, in fact, in the Gospel of John is in the sixth chapter. And it's found here. For the bread of life is he which cometh down from heaven. You see, they had come after Jesus had done this miracle. And, uh, and Jesus took shipping and went across the Sea of Galilee. He knew that they wanted to take him that day and say, let's make him the king. Uh, here's somebody that literally can feed us. And uh, he can heal us. And, uh, and so, uh, so the next morning they're looking for him. Where, where did he go? But Jesus knew what was in man. He knew that the temporary feeding would not be good enough for them. Just like the children of Israel. Uh, they would complain after uh, so long a time. Those that seek merely the sensational. To see what God can do for them. Won't last as disciples. The only ones that are true disciples are those that lose their life to find it. And so uh, they took the shipping up and they found Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They even questioned, why, why did you leave us? You know? And uh, Jesus said, well, seek, uh, you seek for the uh, bread that I gave to you. That's why you came. You came to, because uh, your bellies were filled. He said, I'm the bread of life. For the bread which God I gave, he came down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. This said he unto them, now, Lord, evermore give us this bread, they said. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. <clears throat> he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Um, so he said, labor not for that meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the, the Father will give unto thee. So uh, the bread that comes from heaven satisfies. It's the bread of life. And so this is the first great I am of the seven in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. So uh, this is all spiritual content. By the way, they weren't happy with what he taught them here. Uh, this is the very apex of his popularity. Uh, the multitudes following because of what they had just, their bellies were full. Uh, 
their sick were healed. Uh, they were willing to sacrifice a journey to find Jesus and they sought him out and they found him and they even said, why, why did you leave us? And he said, because you're seeking that bread that's here on earth, he said. You've got to seek the bread that's in heaven. So um, he said, I'm the bread of life. You'll have to eat my flesh and drink my blood and that was the end of it then. They, they didn't want to hear any more of that. That's spiritual talk. And uh, so they left him at that point. So we can see the decline happens right after this miracle. <clears throat> yeah, the people of the world are looking for something as well. They'll take just about anything else to satisfy their cravings and their lusts and so on. Maybe I shouldn't put Bud Light up here. I think they're having a hard time selling that stuff. Can you imagine that? I feel sorry for them. <laughs> I remember years back, I don't know, I was on, coming up 2nd Avenue and a beer truck had turned over somehow. It took a sharp turn and the beer truck turned over and smashed all the kegs and there was a river of beer flowing out uh, all over the road and all the way out to the Monongahela River. I felt sorry for the fish. But uh, <laughs> I took great delight in that, that seeing that. But, and I take great delight that Bud Light is having a hard time, they're having a hard time selling it. Maybe people will say it's not worth drinking the beer anyway. I don't think so, but they'll probably turn to another brand. But you can name it, whatever you want to name it. Sin in all of its various diffusions and hues cannot satisfy. Only Christ can satisfy the heart. So you cannot be the partaker of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is of the world and not of the Father. <clears throat> the world passeth away and the lust thereof. <clears throat> but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. <laughs> We're just talking um, with someone that uh, uh, has been coming to church recently and she knows somebody that um, was related to people that came here years back. And uh, so when this girl said, well, she's coming to the church here, the, the friend said, oh, that's just a, that, that's a cult. <laughs> so, that's, a, that's the best way to, as soon as you start teaching people you shouldn't be drinking alcohol, you shouldn't be sleeping with your boyfriend, you're a cult, you see, because you're teaching that, right? Nobody would ever think that the devil's brand is a cult, you know. Now, that's normal. The things of the world are considered normal, but if you follow Christ and you try to live a holy life, then, uh, you know, it's a cult. <laughs> They've got people brainwashed. They've given up uh, all their uh, filth and evil. <laughs> you know, imagine that. They're not getting high anymore. They don't even come to our parties. Oh, it must be a cult <laughs> at any rate. <clears throat> oh, the bread of this world, huh? Now, what is this about? Well, this was a, this was a brand they tried, you know, I bet they won't try this anymore. What's the old thing? Go woke and go broke. You know, Madison Avenue, not, they're not stupid. But uh, whatever they did with the Bud uh, Light thing was about the dumbest thing that they could have ever done. And they alienated an entire, you know, they alienated the people that are supporting them. They cut off. Um, so uh, a few years back, they had this cereal. Uh, they called it All Together. And... Um, 
it was all about, uh, I guess it was Fruit Loops. <laughs> so, I know you can't read it, but it was all about support of the gay movement. And so they put out the, a serial just uh, for that time period. It didn't go over well either, didn't sell, and so they, they pulled it back off. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Uh, behold, uh, Acts 8, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from the north and even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Oh. Of course, uh, that's what Amos is speaking about, a different kind of famine. And Job says, neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips. I've esteemed the words of his mouth better than necessary food. So, Mark, uh, Matthew 4.4. 4. So Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. <clears throat> and Psalm 42 says, Oh, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night as they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? So blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Amen. So, there's a lot of lessons here. Uh, it doesn't come out in Matthew's account necessarily, but we find that uh, where did he get the loaves and the fishes, right? And uh, so Mark tells us it was a little lad. Uh, and Luke gives us this description as well. So we have a little fellow. And I don't know how little he was because uh, his lunch was five loaves of bread and two fish. So I think he was kind of large, right? <laughs> but isn't it wonderful that uh, the Lord uh, says... Well, I can't do this miracle without your help. I need your help. He doesn't need our help, does he? But he chooses to make us confederate with his great cause. For whatever reason, it glorifies God that flesh becomes a part of this. Jesus could have come without the virgin, but he chooses to use the virgin. So uh, Jesus could get the gospel preached without me or you, but he chooses to use human instrumentality. And so Jesus said unto them, uh, They need not depart. I give you them to eat. And they said, uh, We have but a few five loaves and two fishes. And so uh, the little boy says, Well, I'll lend you. Here, take what little I have and, uh, and give to as many as we can possibly feed. It's the best I can do. Before Jesus dies, Mary of Bethany takes the spike nard and pours it on the feet of Jesus. Judas immediately uh, brings a recrimination. He says, well, this could have been sold and given to the poor. And John lets it be known, not that he cared for the poor, but because he held the bag, right? But, um, and Jesus said, let her alone. She's done this for my burial. So it wasn't much, was it? You know, she poured out the spike nard. It was what she had. She did what she could is how it's described. She did what she could. So, um, so the little boy said, I don't have much, but what I have is yours, Lord. Uh, we all need to say it. I don't have much to offer, but what I have is yours, Lord. Amen. 
if you'll use it. And look what God does with something that's little. You know, there's that song, little is much when God is in it. And so Jesus said, do you mind if I borrow your, your five loaves and two fishes? You'll get it back, and you'll get it back with interest, right? <laughs> it always works that way. So what did Jesus borrow? Well, he borrowed a womb to be born in from Mary. Got permission, and Mary gave permission, be it unto me according to thy word. And the Holy Ghost uh, came upon her at that, at that moment. Well, when, uh, when he was born, you might recall they had no place. So uh, a stable was given. A stable to be born in. You might recall that Jesus was a stepchild. Uh, it was her stepfather, Joseph, that was compliant and, and went along with this whole circumstance and uh, was willing to raise Jesus up and even give him a trade. So uh, he had to have a house to be born in. Thank God for stepfathers that come in and fill the gap. When Jesus gives uh, that sermon, uh, the people were pressing upon him, it says. And uh, they would have pushed him into the Sea of Galilee. They, were, they wanted to get that close to him, and who wouldn't? And so Jesus says to Peter, you mind if I borrow your boat <clears throat> just for a little bit here? And he launches out a little space and he uses it as his pulpit. When we see Jesus coming in glory, he comes back riding a donkey, doesn't he? And, but the donkey he doesn't own. And he gives the instruction to the two disciples to go and you're going to find where two ways meet and you're going to find a colt and the foal of an ass and uh, you bring them and we'll borrow them. If the, if the owner comes protesting, just say, the Lord has need of it. Now, isn't that wonderful? Amen. So the Lord has need of you. He has the need of me. Can you, you say, well, he doesn't need me. Well, he seems to, it seems to be that that's what he wants to do. He needs, he needs the little boy's lunch. Uh, you say, well, he didn't need that. No, he didn't, but he, he used it. We become part of the corporation. And uh, aren't you glad that God doesn't leave us out of the plan? So then, uh, well, it's the Passover night. It'll be the last Passover for his disciples, this last supper with Jesus. But they had no place. But Jesus said, well, you're going to find a man. He's going to be walking around with a uh, pitcher on his head, and uh, uh, he'll take you to where we're going to go. And it seems to be young John Mark. And they take him to the upper room, which would later be the place where the church was born the day of Pentecost. A room to celebrate his final Passover. They crucify Jesus and he has no place to be buried until Joseph of Arimathea arrives. And he has to borrow a tomb in which to be placed. But only for three days. It indeed was just a short period of time. And did I mention this? Of the things that Jesus borrowed, of all the things that he borrowed, the most important was... He borrowed our sins, didn't he? He took them into his own sinless being and he becomes sin for us. He becomes a sin sacrifice in our place and takes our misdeeds and our evil and our mortal sins and takes them and nails them to the cross and takes them out of the way. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. And so... We have uh, this account. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fishes and looking up to heaven, 
he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. So he gives the blessing. Um, so this week is Thanksgiving and people will be thanking God. I imagine that in most cases that uh, when you go to your unsaved relatives that they're glad that you will be the one. They'll say, now you go to church, you say the blessing, right? People like to palm that one off, right? Let somebody else do this. Uh, they're uncomfortable talking to God. It's unnatural for them. Uh, that's why they memorize a prayer. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Whatever. They'll maybe recite the Lord's Prayer uh, or bless this food. Uh, something simple. Uh, get it over with, so to speak, and be done with it. But those that know the Lord um, are delighted. We give thanks from the heart. We're grateful for every benefit that God gives to us. More than we can count, as we sang tonight, count your blessings, name them one by one. So, um, well, Psalm 104 is a good place to go with this, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all of his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. So we have uh, blessings untold, five are delineated there, but so many others that we could think about that God has given, and we give him in return thanks. Thanks be to God. And Jesus gives us by illustration the blessing that brings a multiplication. So Jesus has the power to uh, multiply and then he gives us the power to distribute. Did you notice the detail here? He commanded the multitude to sit down and uh, they took the five loaves, the two fishes, looking up to heaven, he blessed, he break. He gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. So what is it in this intercessory role? Only God can do the multiplication. Only God can perform the miracle of rebirth. But he gives the message to us and says, now you take what has been multiplied, give it out freely. And I don't know how the miracle, I mean the, the movie shows it in, in one way and perhaps it's, a, it, I'm thinking that Every time they reached into the basket, one more fish popped, right? And they kept, kept going, you know, like the meal uh, that the widow had that, uh, with Elijah. It never came to the bottom of it. Same with the loaves. And everywhere the loaves, you know, they kept, they kept getting more loaves and more fish. 5,000 people. Everybody's eating. And, you know, um, something about eating, it's a, it's a convivial time. People sit at a table and even crabby people, when they're eating, uh, it, you know, the endorphins begin uh, flowing in the body. And that's why people enjoy eating so much, because it's a good feeling. And in fact, what happens with those endorphins is that they, they, they fool us, because we feel like we could keep eating and eating and eating, right? And then we get into surfeiting and, uh, you know, gluttony after a while. But... But the notion of it is uh, that it brings a joy. Eating brings a certain amount of joy. So can you just imagine 5,000 people, and they're all eating here. I think there's a lot of hubbub going on. 
uh, along with filling their bellies, there's, there's maybe song going up and there's rejoicing and there's, there's have to be giving of thanks for what God is doing and people just start in am, uh, amazement as this is being multiplied and distributed without end, it seems like. And, uh, and no one had to worry about saying, well, you know, can I get seconds here? No, no, no. You know, everybody was uh, filled and filled up to the brim. Well, I have more to say on this and that'll wait till Sunday morning. So Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you are and what you did so long ago. And these uh, present to us great lessons. We want to be able to take all those lessons to heart. So remember us here, uh, Lord, tonight we gather for the second blessing. We're grateful for the Lord's day and what it represents to us, Lord. It's uh, to us the happiest day of the week. It's a joy to be together with God's people to sing the songs of Zion, uh, to love one another, to pray one with another. We were excited to hear what uh, you did in those uh, lives this morning, Lord, through testimony. These things, Lord, are uh, causes for great rejoicing. So I ask your blessing here tonight too, Lord. Uh, we assemble because, uh, not because we have to, but because we desire to. We're hungry. We want to be fed. So we thank you for the good word that never fails. When we hear it, Lord, it rejoices our heart. Uh, we find it, as Job did, to be uh, greater than our necessary food. We found thy words, we did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing of our hearts. So send us away with blessings and let us be filled here tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to accept the plan of salvation that God has laid forth from the foundations of the earth. And the first point of that plan is that all have sinned. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So begin by confessing your sin before God, that you have sinned against Him. You can't even recollect all of the times that you've offended him. He has the record and that record needs to be expunged. Secondly, it's important to know that God will punish sin. If it goes without atonement, we will pay the ultimate price. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that eternal price is hell, fire, and brimstone. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But Jesus paid the price and made the atonement on the cross. God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. He made an end to our damnation and our debt that we owed to him, paid by his own blood and justifies us before a holy God. On the third day in triumph, Jesus rises from the dead 
that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So call upon him today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Come into